Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. That's IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and one of the hosts for First State Insights. We're back today with another conversation from IPA's Conflict Resolution Program. This episode focuses on restorative justice. What is it? How is it different from criminal justice? What is the value of victim-offender dialogues? And how do these programs work in practice? Let's get to the conversation. My name is Danielle Voda, and I work in IPA's Conflict Resolution Program. I am joined today by our graduate research assistant, Ruth DeCoff. Say hello, Ruth. Hello. And our wonderful guest, Kim Book. Kim is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization, Victims Voices Heard, and is responsible for Delaware's statewide victim offender dialogue program. Since 2002, Kim has helped thousands of victims and offenders in Delaware. Her organization has played a significant role in reducing recidivism rates amongst offenders. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Kim, why did you start Victims Voices Heard and how is restorative justice different from criminal justice? Well, uh, 26 years ago, my 17-year-old daughter, uh, Nicole Mosley, was in her father's home where she was living. Um, and a young man came to see her, uh, LaVon, who was 17 years old. And they got into an argument in the house and he picked up a butcher knife off the kitchen counter and stabbed her to death. Nicole was my only child. And I then became a part of the criminal justice process. They had asked for the death penalty for LaVon. He ended up not getting that. Um, He got second degree murder and serving a 38 year sentence. After he was convicted, I was able to visit the prison. The attorney general at the time, Jane Brady, allowed me to come into the prisons and the commissioner. And I saw prison right where he was and went into a cell block. And But that just didn't seem like enough for me. And then was watching TV one night and saw a TV program where in Texas, victims were having the opportunity to meet with their incarcerated offender. And so that was probably, Nicole was murdered in 1995. So that was probably in, oh, I guess it was probably around 2000. And so um, I started a victim offender dialogue program um, in Delaware. And so 20 years ago. And so you ask the question about how criminal justice is different than restorative justice. And the difference is restorative justice is gives me a part in the process. And I have some say where the criminal justice process, victims have no say. It's as if the crime was a crime that was committed against the state. And it wasn't committed against the state. It was committed against me. And so I think that is a huge difference between restorative justice and the criminal justice process. Because restorative justice sees the victim has been harmed and then gives the, um, the offender the opportunity to take responsibility for that crime and make amends to the victim, where the criminal justice process never does that. The offender goes to prison, but they never have to meet with the person who's committed a crime. They never have to face the person that they've harmed. And I can tell you after 20 years that, that it's difficult to face the person you harmed. I just did a dialogue and we'll be doing another one in a couple of weeks. And Offenders get very nervous about that, but we prepare them and it's something they just never forget. You don't forget 
sitting across from the person that you harmed and having to answer questions about why you committed the crime and taking responsibility for that. And the criminal justice process really never makes the offender take responsibility for what they've done. They have incarcerated them. That's not the same as taking responsibility. That's just so incredible how you took a very painful moment in your life and experience and were able to transform that into possibilities in the future for people to have healing and for something positive to come out of such a a horrible thing that could happen. I just have to really commend you, commend you for that. Very very brave. And I can also tell you that I I created the program, um, started it in Delaware 20 years ago, but I have never met with LaVon. So um, 50 people have met with their offender over the last 20 years, but I'm not one of them because LaVon still does not take responsibility for killing Nicole and has no remorse. So I have not met with him. So I have created a program that I've not been able to participate in myself. But just being able to do this for someone else and watch them heal and watch offenders take responsibility for the harm they've caused, knowing that now they're less likely to reoffend is very healing for me. Do you think that restorative justice can be the solution to slowing the incarceration rates in the United States? Well, I do. And actually, Victims Voices Heard has had the opportunity to prove that it can. In 2015, um, we had an evaluation study done um, by Brown University that is showing that those who participate in our programs, we have several programs, But those who participate in our programs, recidivism rate is 50% less. So they are, they're less likely to reoffend. And they also, they are less likely to recidivate even in the prisons. So 33%, uh, it was reduced by 33%. So, you know, they're write-ups in prison for the ones who took the programs. So we've put 1,300 people through our programs which we started those 10 years ago. So they're in all the facilities in the state. And so we've proven, you know, that we can reduce recidivism. And I do. I absolutely believe offenders are less likely to reoffend. You know, if they take programs, if they're able to see the harm that they've caused. I mean, there are are other states across the country who are looking at our work and looking at our programs and copying them um, because they want to do the same thing. Well, that's just such good news to hear that you're able to also work across state lines and mm-hmm. all that, the time mm-hmm. that you're collaborating with other people in the field and that this process is, is spreading and mm-hmm. is effective. So how does the impact of crime on victims and the courage to change programs work in the prison? Okay, so and that's what we were just talking about is so we've put 1300 over 1300 people through our programs. So normally what happens is, is the prison classifies offenders to program. Um, So they decide on point systems and when people come in and evaluating them, what programs they need to take. So um, some of the guys that are in our programs over the years um, volunteer, but Now, mostly, they're classified to the program. So what happens is 
They're classified to the program. We go in, we interview them for the program to make sure that they're appropriate and they understand, you know, what's going to go on in the class. We can interview 60 people and we'll take 15. We also have two inmate residents who have taken the program probably for, I don't know, four or five times. So they know what to expect in the program. They're not teaching it. I hire facilitators um, who teach the programs in the facilities for us. They're there to help us hold the class down. And they know these guys because they live with them. So they're there to challenge their thoughts, their behaviors in a way that I cannot um, because I'm not, you know, I'm not in the same position they're in. They're offenders and they challenge each other. And so, and they know what we're trying to get out of the class. So we are using evidence-based material from the change companies. And so they are taking also a pre and a post test. So they take um, a test when they come in to see how much they know. And then they take the same test when they leave so that we can measure them against each other. They're taking, it's a 24-week program. And so the first 12 weeks, they're working on a program that's called the Impact of Crime on Victims. And so that's 12 weeks. And in those first 12 weeks that they're in there, I'm their first speaker. <laughs> so I talk about my daughter's murder, which is difficult for them. And they're, they're resistant when some of them, when they first come in, not all of them, but some of them, and they're just not sure what to expect. But after the first night hearing from me, they are um, a little bit just pushed back. So I'm, I'm kind of breaking the ice a little bit. So then in that 12 weeks, they have curriculum that they use. They have a booklet and they have homework to do. We watch some videos that go along with the class and some of the things that they're learning. They're learning about domestic violence. They're learning about um, homicides and how victims are all impacted by all of these things, sexual assault, robberies, drunk driving, drug dealing, which is a big one because they don't think that drug dealers have any victims. So in that 12 weeks also, we bring in people who are guest speakers, people who've been victims of crime. So they, our classes are 90 minutes to two, hour, to two hours. And so they're kind of, the victims come in, they talk about being the victim of a crime, whatever's happened to them. And then the offenders have the opportunity to sit across from them and ask them questions. So um, we're all sitting in a group. And so they've got that opportunity. And they'll tell you that's the most powerful piece for them, that they've never done that before and they've never had that opportunity. And that's very powerful for them. So once they're done with the impact of crime on victims, that 12 weeks, then they're going to move into another 12 weeks. And it's called the courage to change. So in those, they have booklets again each week from the change companies. It's a curriculum that we use. And they really like that. And by that time, they've also kind of, the classes have kind of gelled. So like they're used to being with each other every week now. So, and they're, they're starting to loosen up a little bit. They're starting to, you know, trust each other a little bit more. And it's becoming more of a group session for them where they can just, you know, really come and, and work on some things. So the courage to change is te teaching them about um, social values, self-control, family values just core values for them for when they get out and things that they need to work on. 
and then they can keep those booklets. Then in that Courage to Change program, we're also bringing guest speakers, but this time we're bringing in ex-offenders, offenders who've been, you know, committed crimes, but they've gone on to do good things with their lives and are successful. And then they'll even give um, the offender their card. And, you know, say, when you get out of here, you know, if you need some help, you can connect with me because sometimes, a lot of times, almost all the time, these guys need mentors when they get out. When they're finished with the class, the prison allows them to have pizza, soda, um, and cake. So they've been in there for 24 weeks and they allow them to have a graduation. That's how those programs work. The Impact of Crime on Victims, the Courage to Change program. And that's at, we've been in every facility in the state of Delaware. Right now, we're concentrating on Howard Young, which is in Wilmington, James T. Vaughn, which is in Smyrna, and SCI, Sussex Correctional Institution, which is in Georgetown. So, and I teach a class myself on Monday evenings because I just, I love teaching. I just, I love watching the progression of them being in the class and them learning something. And they will tell you that this is the best class they've ever taken. So they've learned more in that class than some of them have been in there for many, many years. But, you know, so it's it really is a good program. And I have the opportunity to also be their teacher, but also be a victim survivor of crime for them. And I've worked with victims for the last 20 years also. And so I bring all of that to my class with me. So I'm able to really be really intense with them and really teach them something about what it means to be the victim survivor of a crime. Yeah, it really sounds like it's a full 360 degree approach, starting with them accepting responsibility and facing what they've done. but then finding that there is hope and that there is redemption and that there's a possibility of change for the future. And the fact that, you know, you do that in a full 360 degree way is probably why they find it so life-changing and, and why it's so effective. Well, we sit in a circle. So, you know, I'm not lecturing to them. So it's, I'm not, I don't lecture. This is a group setting. So, and I sit in the circle with them. So we all sit in the circle together. We're all equal and we're, we're talking about things and I want to hear what you have to say. I want you to listen to me, but I'm going to listen to you as well. And I'm not here to judge you. That's I'm here to try and help you so that when you get out of here, you don't create another victim. That's restorative justice. So, Kim, how do you prepare a victim or offender to meet face to face? Well, first of all, offenders cannot request to meet with their victim. That has to come from the victim. So, and victims find out about the Victim Offender Dialogue Program through the Attorney General's Office, the Department of Correction, you know, just searching on the website, finding our web, our, uh, our website. And so then they contact me. And then what I do is I send the offender a letter, find out where the offender is, send the offender a letter and, and tell them, you know, that their victim survivor would like to meet with them. And tell them that they don't have to do it. It's voluntary. And I'm coming in two weeks to come talk to them about it. And talking to me does not mean they have to participate. If I go in and they don't want to do it, which is 
I have not had that happen very often. I really could count on one hand how many times that's happened in 20 years, 50 cases. It just doesn't happen. So most of the time, offenders want to participate in the program. So then I go back. I'm working with the victim outside every other week, either by phone or meeting with them in person. And then I'm working with the offender. I go into the prison. Same thing every other week. And it's just them and myself sitting in a room. There's also a prep process that both parties have to go through. So they're answering questions um, and they're going back and they're talking about the crime, how it impacted them, what they want to hear, what's important for them. For the offender, they might be talking about victim reminders, things that are reminding them about the crime, that are reminding the victim about the crime. So it's all trying to get both people to the table. But for me, I have to understand what's going to happen and what the victim wants to ask and whether or not the offender is going to be able to ask that or be able to answer that. And so then when we finally get to the table, it's like five or six months before that, the victim comes in about maybe a week or so before and does a walkthrough. So they actually get to sit at the table in the room where the dialogue is going to take place. So when they get there, it's not their first time. And um, then the victim and the offender exchange a letter saying why they want to meet with each other. And the day of the dialogue, they are given uh, four hours to sit at the table and talk to one another. Then we just do a, um, a little bit of a follow up. I'll go back in to see the offender in two weeks, call the victim, do the same thing. And then in two months, I do another follow up with them. I'm surprised it takes, you said four to six months. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I just, you know, in some of the other states, because I think there's 38 states right now that have victim offender dialogue programs and not everyone takes as much time, but I feel like I really need to know what's going to happen. When I say happen, this is a one-time only meeting and we have to get no contacts lifted as well. So the attorney general's office lifts that no contact for us if the offender has one with the victim just for the time for the victim to sit down at the table and talk to them. It's a one-time only meeting. And I want to make sure that when the victim survivor leaves, that they don't go back and say, oh man, I wish I'd asked this or that. It just, the victim might be ready before the offender is, and I need more time with the offender. And sometimes people aren't in the same place or never in the same place. What I mean by that is like some offenders are like, they're like, they probably could do this in a month or two. Other offenders, <laughs> it's not like that. So we start out really like they want to do it, but they just haven't thought it all through and they just aren't as accountable. So I almost have to do the impact of crime on victims with them. I have to do a class with them one-on-one to get them to understand. So what can it feel like being, um, being face-to-face with your offender? And is there a situation where a face-to-face dialogue would not be appropriate? So we do not, and most people do not throughout the country, we usually do not do domestic violence cases. If I did a domestic violence case, I would work it with a, an advocate from the domestic violence field. Because what we're trying not to do is we're not trying to get people back together. And I don't need an offender thinking that that's what's happening. 
they could possibly think that. Um, so those are just a little more. And then we don't do stalking cases, but we do everything else. And what can it feel like? <laughs> it's very intense. And people are okay until they get like probably about two weeks away <laughs> and then they have a date. But both people are feeling that way. So the victim and the offender are both feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety because suppose you haven't seen this person in 20 years and the last last time you saw them was in court. So that's how you remember one, one another is the last time you saw each other. It may not be who you are today, but that's what we remember because that's all we have to go by. So what they're having to do is trust me that this is going to be okay. And, and that's my job once we get in there. I'm there to put all the pieces together and the correctional officers in the room with us. It's just the correctional officer, myself, the victim, and the offender at the table. And so, you know, I'm, I'm there to make sure the walkie talkies aren't going off and we're not being interrupted and there's water at the table and tissues. And so I'm not doing any talking at that point. I am there just to orchestrate things. And what I tell people is when you sit down, there's nothing I can do about this. This is going to be really difficult for the first couple of minutes, three, four, five minutes. And then things just the level starts to drop and people start talking to one another. And we take breaks whenever we want to take and we have four hours. But you want to take a break five minutes in, you take a break. You know, it's just and some people take four hours and some people take 30 minutes. So and that's all the victim gets to decide all that. Sounds intense. <laughs> it is. It is. But it then is. it's the result is good. It's always good. I've never had any, I've never had any problems. I've never had anything go wrong. Not ever. Most of the time, you know, people will shake hands. And I'm also going to tell you that just like most of the time, people go in there and they know what they want. Some people want to go in and they want to forgive the offender. And some people just want the offender to know how this has impacted their life. So, and that's what it's about. It's about whatever they want it to be. I'm happy to hear it's actually restorative justice is really. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. What are some things that you really wish people knew? I really wish people knew that this option is there for them, that they can meet with their offender, that there's these states like 38 states in our country that have victim offender dialogue programs. And people don't know that. I also wish people knew that as hard as it can be, that it can close another chapter in the healing process for them, because that's what what victim survivors go through. Different stages, different chapters. There's no such thing as closure, but victims can close another chapter in this book, in this healing process. And also that, you know, just getting answers to questions that you've had over the years or we're just wanting to know what the offender's doing or how they feel. This is an opportunity to do that. And I really wish people knew, probably more importantly than anything, that believe it or not, offenders, a lot of offenders really do want to take responsibility for their crime. They want it, they want to hold themselves accountable and they want the opportunity to say, I'm sorry. But they're never going to get that. I mean, there's just like in our state, 
there's four or 5,000 offenders. And, you know, to tell you that I've only done 50 of these, when I work with an offender, what I say is, I don't know why you're getting to do this, but you are. And there are so many people in this facility that are going to want to do this and they're not going to get the opportunity. Why you're getting to do it, I do not know, but you are. And so they really do want to take responsibility. And if you will just give someone that opportunity, they can rise to that level. And they've wanted to do that. But, you know, there's no way for victims to know that. Thank you so much, Kim, for your amazing work you're doing in Delaware. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Learn more about Kim Book and her nonprofit. Please visit victimsvoicesheard.org. This episode of First Aid Insights was brought to you through the Institute for Public Administration's Conflict Resolution Program, a resource dedicated to building statewide capacity for collaborative approaches to the resolution of conflict. To learn more, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks for listening today. Make sure to subscribe to First Aid Insights and tune in again soon. Take care.